Welcome to Swift Unwrapped, a podcast about the Swift programming language and other open source projects at swift.org. I'm Jesse Squires. And I'm JV Smart. Today, we'd like to thank BuddyBuild for sponsoring the show. BuddyBuild's a mobile continuous integration and delivery platform. They have crash reporting, feedback, uh, all in one, and it just takes a few minutes to set up. Um, so if you've ever... Uh, spent days retrofitting legacy web infrastructure, you're constantly maintaining build scripts uh, just to get your work done, Buddy Builds for you. Uh, it takes literally just minutes to set up and you can customize it exactly to match your app's specific build requirements. Uh, using Buddy Build, you can gain back all the time that you'd be spending to create and maintain your development pipeline and really focus on building apps that your users will love. There's lots of companies, thousands even, that use BuddyBuild, Slack, Meetup, Firefox, and they all trust BuddyBuild uh, with their mobile development because it's the fastest, most reliable way to build, test, and release their Swift apps. There are tens of thousands of developers already using BuddyBuild, trying for free today at BuddyBuild.com. Thanks, BuddyBuild. All right, so today we are continuing our discussion on ABI stability. Uh, heeding Michael Ilsman's advice. <laughs> um, today we're going to focus on uh, data layout and uh, type uh, metadata. So to begin uh, with data layout, so this is really the the, the memory layout of uh, your types. And so uh, some terminology to begin with, um, an object uh, is just any stored entity. So it's not an object in the sense of uh, a class-based object-oriented um, uh, definition. Uh, object can be a struct, enum, a class instance, um, references to uh, class instances, values of protocol, protocol types, um, or closures. Next, a data member. That's uh, an object, a data member of an object as uh, any value that requires layout within the object itself. So uh, an object's uh, properties or associated values. Um, do you want to go over the next? Yeah, couple? sure. Um, so, so far, you know, I think most people are comfortable with the concept of an object and a data member. Um, yeah. And next up, we kind of get into uh, some of the more hidden aspects of how data is stored um, in Swift and, and laid out in Swift. Uh, the first one is the spare bit. Um, and you can, uh, some objects have multiple spare bits. Uh, and it's basically just some extra bits that are not used by objects of a given type. Um, on modern architectures, uh, a lot of types need some sort of alignment to the number of bits on the platform. So usually that's 16, 32, 64, uh, etc. The kind of minimum size that an object can be. Um, so when you need um, some sort of alignment or padding, then you'll have these spare bits. And the runtime often uses these spare bits for things like uh, reference counting or 
um, for uh, locking access to an object mm-hmm. because it kind of needs to attach associated data to some instances, but um, you know, and it has this free space that isn't actually being used. Uh, and so those are spare bits. Yeah. For example, um, a reference type where a, a bit or multiple bits are used uh, to maintain that reference count or, or something like that. Uh, types that don't need that, those would just be unused. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, yes and no, because classes and structs use entirely different layouts to start off with, right? Mm-hmm. But think of a struct that, you know, in C, you have, say, um, a Boolean followed by a you know, 32-bit integer in the struct. Um, well, because of alignment, you'll have a ton of padding uh, space between that first member, the Boolean, right, uh, which only needs a single bit, and the next member, which needs to be aligned uh, usually at 16-bit intervals. So you have 15 spare bits there. Right. Um, and Swift tries to be more efficient with usage of how it bit packs um, members of a struct or, or other types. But no matter what, they're always... or there are often spare bits, no matter what strategy you use. And this part of ABI definition is specifying exactly where those spare bits should be. Um, and then the fourth aspect, or fourth terminology is the extra inhabitant. Um, so that's, for example, a bit pattern that um, doesn't represent a valid value for whatever uh, object that's representing. So if you take C as an example, again, um, you know, a lot of this ABI stuff is uh, described in terms of how it would behave in C. If you think of an enum with three cases, that can fit in two bits, right? And that often is packed into two bits. Um, But you can have four different representations in two bits, right? You have four states of those two bits. Mm-hmm. And so you have a single extra inhabitant. Um, you have a fourth unused bit pattern that can then be used to represent something that the runtime needs to store, for example. So if you wanted to store some sort of reference counting bit or a bit used for locking purposes for uh, you know, um, uh, cross-thread uh, resource coordination, then you could use that fourth invalid pattern to then represent that it's in the locked or unlocked state, for example. Yeah, but those would be just like special cases where you see, oh, we have these extra inhabitants in this scenario, so we'll use them for this for efficiency reasons. Absolutely. Well, yeah. all of these, uh, the the spare bit concept and the extra inhabitant concept um is on a type by type basis. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no guarantee that a type will have spare bits or that will have extra inhabitants or what they will be or even how many there will be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but types can have these. And I mean, so far we're really just defining terminology. Yeah, yeah. Um, next up, we'll, we'll really talk about how these impact uh, the stability of an ABI. Mm-hmm. But the, yeah, so the distinction here is, you know, these spare bits are reserved, like bits that are reserved to usually uh, for certain purposes, whereas extra inhabitants are um, just like superfluous bits that are not being used but don't aren't denoted for a specific purpose. Uh Not exactly, no, because no? okay. um, you can have spare bits uh, really anywhere 
um, and and they don't need to be reserved necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can't really. So you can't. It's not like, for example, the ISA, like the ISA pointer of yeah, class, yeah. where uh, unconditionally every class will have one right. at offset zero. Mm-hmm. Um, some enums might have uh, some spare bits, and some might not. Mm-hmm. And so you can't assume that you'll always have a spare bit to do something, right? So right. this is where the runtime or the compiler um, should probably try to use them if available, but otherwise fall back on some other Im- more general implementation, like, for example, using a value witness table. And we'll get to what that means in, in a minute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of this is uh, to kind of lay out what we mean by data layout. And so uh, objects can have a statically known layout uh, if the compiler is able to determine that at compilation time. So if you just have, if you have a concrete uh, object and all of its types, uh, all of its members are concrete, uh, you can know that at compile time. Um, otherwise, uh, if you can't determine this, that will be an object's layout will be determined at, at runtime. And this is uh, what we call an opaque layout. So an example here would be uh, an object that has generic parameters where you don't know the size of those generics. Yeah, that's right. And obviously there's, uh, there's a runtime cost associated to um, objects with opaque layouts. Um, and so it's in uh, everyone's advantage to try to uh, have as many um, different object types that you can represent with a static layout uh, and prioritize that or prefer that, but uh, there are just some cases that you just cannot know a layout at compile time. So there's a cost associated to that, and if you're writing uh, especially performance-critical code, um, then you might want to keep this in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so one aspect of how this plays into ABI stability is the order in which these data members in a type are laid out and, and uh, their, their offsets. So if you have a struct, uh, for example, and it has uh, an int property and then a generic T property, um, which comes first? Um, you can have, uh, or let's say it has like two int properties. You can have those first with a deterministic offset for those first two properties, and then um, the the third, um, well, I guess the third would be deterministic as well. You know where it starts for that generic parameter. You just don't know the size, um, as opposed to if the generic uh, member comes first, then you don't know the offset of the other concrete types. Exactly. So if, if a type has... Um any data members that have an opaque uh, layout, then the type, the parent type itself also has an opaque layout. But there can be optimizations within that. And and that's what you're talking about, where there's discussion here in the manifesto to um, pack all of the statically known members of uh, a data layout first Mm -hmm. so that um, uh, their offset isn't affected by the other opaque members of a type that require a runtime call so that if you're only accessing uh, this the statically known members of a type then the 
runtime can just skip the API call to determine the opaque uh, layout altogether. Right. Um, so definitely some nice considerations to optimizations in here. Now, there's um, a handful of different types uh, that are categorized in in mostly three different ways. Um, you have trivial types. And trivial types are also known as just plain old data. It's um, generally when you have uh, for example, a um, uh, like a double is a trivial type where it just stores a, a double value. Or even if you have a type that is composed of strictly trivial types, mm-hmm. that type itself is also trivial. So for example, a point struct that has two double fields, an X and Y coordinate, uh, that type is trivial, et cetera, et cetera, right? It doesn't matter how high up you go. If you then have... Uh, kind of a rect made up of a point and um, and another point, right? Uh, as a start and end, that type is also trivial. And, uh, you know, there's no limit to how high up you go because you're just dealing with plain old data. Mm-hmm. Um, so with trivial types, um, the, the runtime um, never needs to, uh, whenever it's manipulating this data or creating another instance of it, never needs to cause any side effects. So no extra copies, moves, or, or destruction semantics. It's literally just bits. Right. I, you're not um, uh, dealing with retained counts of a reference type, for example, managing whether to increment, decrement, and if it's zero, destroy. Exactly. But, yeah. Yeah. So there's no side effect associated to, to trivial types. Uh, the next type is bitwise movable. Which means that, um, again, well, you can have side effects, uh, but if you do move the object, there's no no other side effect. There's only side effects if you end up copying. Um, so one example of this might be uh, a struct that contains a reference to a class or to, to an instance of a class. When you copy it, you'll need to increment the reference count. When you destroy it, you'll need to decrement the reference count. But to move the type has no uh, additional side effects. There's no other kind of pointer that you need to update to say that uh, the type that used to be here is now there. Right. You just copy the bits over. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, all trivial types are by definition bitwise movable because of the lack of this side effect. And then the third type is types that don't fall into either of these categories. So that can be, for example... Uh, a struct with a weak reference, which is tracked on a side table so that they can be nilled out when the reference object is finally destroyed, that side of, that side table needs to be updated for every move, right? Because it contains a pointer to all of the references to this data. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the third type, which is neither trivial nor bitwise movable. Yeah, uh, side note, there are actually, so I didn't realize, I learned this uh, a while back, um, there are multiple uh, retain counts, multiple reference counts. Um, I always conceptually pictured this as just like a single count on an object, but you have the the strong references and the weak references. And I think unowned is actually separated out of there. Interesting. I did not a, know that. Yeah. There's a discussion on Twitter and about reference counts uh, and I think Joe Groff, he was like, which one? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean, which one? Yeah, uh, That's interesting because um, the reference 
count operations as we know them are atomic. Mm -hmm. Um, and there have been some experimentations to, to, to make them, um, non-atomic, but I wonder then how that impacts this concept of having multiple retain counts, Mm -hmm. right? Like for example, um, are, is the weak reference count uh, member also atomically mutated? Um, I would have, um, I'm actually not sure, but the reason for the, um, for separating these out, as far as I understand, is because weak references don't play a role in the object's destruction, right? So, like, only when the strong count goes to zero is that object destroyed. If the weak count goes to zero, it doesn't matter. So there's like some different bookkeeping that has to happen with all of that. You know, I think this might be one and the same with this side table reference concept that I was mentioning where the retain count, this weak retain count might not be on the object itself. It might might be on the side table. Yeah. uh, Which definitely makes sense because you need to keep a pointer to uh, all these weak references to... Mm -hmm. To, to all the instances that are holding a weak reference because when the referenced object is finally destroyed, you need to go and loop through all of the existing weak references that you have and nil those out. Right. Um, and so, then you just yeah. ignore unowned. You don't do anything with those. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of makes sense. Um, but, you know, the strong reference count is on the object. Right. The weak reference count is in the side table. Mm-hmm. And then unowned is actually just a shortcut for nothing at all. Yeah. Okay, neat. Yeah, I I think so. <laughs> Michael is either smiling and nodding right now or shaking his head uh, in disgrace. I suspect that there's a lot of shaking heads happening in <laughs> Apple uh, HQ and Cupertino when they're listening to us uh, talk about this stuff. Uh, but please write in. Uh, <laughs> Spectrum.chat, we're waiting for you. Yeah. Okay, next thing with under data layout here is about uh, library evolution. Yeah, library evolution. Um, And this is where, if you uh, listen to our last episode, we talked about how uh, stable ABI will impact um, library authors differently than application developers. Um, You know, and putting aside the fact right now that most application developers these days are also to some extent library authors because uh, there's a strong encouragement to split your app up into multiple frameworks. Mm-hmm. But, you know, really considering these as, as different things. Um, library evolution is this concept that will provide tools for library authors to either um, extend their framework in the future or explicitly uh, opt into locking parts of it down. Um, so this is where the, the concept of a resilient layout, uh, for public types comes in where by default, anything that you mark, uh, with a public, um, access control level in your, uh, module will be resilient by default, which means that, um, if it's say an enum, you can add cases to it in the future, or if it's a class, you can, reorder or class or struct really you can reorder uh, its data members um, or even add more for example Mm -hmm. Uh, all without requiring the consumers of your library to recompile Mm -hmm. and that's what we call a resilient layout Um, but there will be tools to freeze the layout for performance if 
uh, library author says that uh, you know watch out you know don't um, I don't know don't expect this to ever change mm-hmm. um, then you'd be able to mark say an enum is closed in which case you can never add cases to it uh, and so this should be done very cautiously mm-hmm. uh, and only when there's a strong performance benefit to be gained that's worth the trade-off of not having this be resilient for future updates. Yeah, the discussion on open versus closed enums is pretty interesting. But the like, what this kind of boils down to is um, basically statically determine, determining this layout uh, versus using an opaque layout, right? Which is determined uh, at runtime. So instead of um, statically knowing the the offsets of these things. Um, you'd go through some API call that um, returns this to you instead. Right, which has a runtime cost, which is where these annotations to freeze layout come in um, if you explicitly want to avoid that performance hit. And I'm not not sure if this has been uh, finalized or stabilized. Uh, I don't think it has, where there's certainly um, a decision to be made here as to whether or not uh, um, certain types, even that are resilient, should have a static layout. Um, mm-hmm. Because one thing that you can do, for example, with structs is to have an order-independent layout algorithm um, that right. no That's... matter the order of your data members, your properties to the struct... Um, the data layout engine will uh, pack them in the same way, uh, no matter what. And that has the advantage of keeping the type layout resilient, even while allowing the library author to, say, reorder uh, these members. I'm not sure uh, where I fall on this. One other option that I'm not sure if it's been considered in the discussions would be... um, you have resilient layouts by default, but they're append only. So you can't reorder things that you've shipped before, mm-hmm. um, which... So this is literally like you have an enum, you have my property one, two, and three. Um, when you declare this, uh, like destruct or whatever, for example, uh, you can't move property three up above property one? Or- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well... You may be able to. Uh, it depends on the decision that ends up being made here. Um, it, it is the consideration. That is what's being considered. Right. Um, but the solution c- can have many different shapes, right? One of them is just to never even try to statically know the the layout at mm-hmm. compile time. Right. Um, right. And that's very flexible because it means that you can um, kind of change things in many more different ways without trying to be deterministic about about the the layout algorithm. Right, but then you have this runtime overhead. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Trade-offs. Uh, the trade-offs, exactly. Um so I'm not sure which where I fall on this. I would say that um because the the issue with a an order independent layout algorithm is that I'm not sure you can um fully support like append only semantics uh, to library evolution. So say you have um, the standard case of a struct with the first member of a bool 
and um, and then like a, a wider data type afterwards, right? Mm-hmm. So, if, for example, a, a double. Mm-hmm. What the order agnostic layout engine might do is to say, well, we'll um, try to bit pack, mm-hmm. right? And uh, maybe that's a bad bad example, but you can have you can have a bool, a double, and another bool, so that um, the layout the order agnostic layout engine would reorder one of the bools so that um, you can reuse kind of an an alignment slot uh, so that instead of your struct being three words wide, uh, it's only two words wide. Right. So you shove those two bools into a single word. Exactly. Now, um, I guess that is resilient if you add another bool. Mm Mm-hmm. But for more complex cases that it, not really well suited to uh, you know, speaking out loud, um, you might not, a, an order agnostic layout engine might have to, might produce different results if you've appended more things. Right. So you, you can picture maybe, um, uh, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm having a hard time. Maybe it is possible to actually have an, an order agnostic layout engine be deterministic even when appending things and reordering things. Um, that'd be awesome. Yeah. How would if uh, if the order must if the order can't change? How what's the uh, end user experience for a library author? Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so that, well, I guess uh, more to the point. If I declare a struct that has these three properties and I move one, will I get some kind of error? Or well, my, my clients would just your old clients would, old clients would yeah. just crash. Yeah, uh, which, which is why this whole exercise is important in the first place. This ABI stability, yeah, to make sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, right. So that would be awful for yes, every old client. And now. Uh, for the first time, really, um, we're starting to consider language design uh, not only um, across space, but also across time um, in the same way that uh, application developers dealing with database schemas have had to worry about before, where um, if you change your model and you have a mismatch with whatever was on disk before, you um, either need a stable library evolution concept, right, for your ORM or for your database layer, mm-hmm. or you need a migration strategy. Right. And neither of those are really possible when you don't just move forward in time like you do with app updates. You can also move kind of backwards in time where the runtime installed on the OS is newer than what your app is running. So... In that sense, a migration right. strategy isn't an option. Right. You need you really do need stability and deterministic behavior. Right. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Swift across all of space and time. <laughs> right. Uh, somebody called Neil Tyson. <laughs> uh, we should get moving here because yeah, there's there's a lot to cover here. Yeah. One quick note. Um, in the tuple discussion here, uh, I learned that fixed size C arrays are imported into Swift as tuples. So if uh, an array of yes. size N and C is just 
uh, imported as an in tuple. Yeah, which if ever you've interfaced with uh, statically sized C arrays, yes, from obviously Swift. I have not yet. <laughs> I've uh, I've seen some data tables, and if you look at Crypto Swift, I think which we've discussed before yeah. on the show, um, you'll see these massive tuples that have like 128 members, and um, they're used as lookup tables for uh, crypto functions. Got it. Yeah, I just thought that was. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, actually, speaking of takeaways from reading this document, one of my takeaways uh, with tuples again is that um, there's a uh, high reabstraction cost to tuples, and and let's define what that means here. And, and abstraction um, is uh, let's see if I can find the definition. There are abstraction levels in Swift, and um, all types in Swift conceptually exist at multiple levels of abstraction. For example, an int value is a concrete type. So that's kind of at the lowest level of, of abstraction. But the same value could be passed to a function expecting a generic type that's a level of abstraction above int. So for example, you know, generic type T, right. which you don't know at compile time what that will be unless it's um, it has an access control level of you know, internal or lower, mm-hmm. and you have whole module optimization turned on, in which case maybe you can re, uh, re-abstract that strictly as an int. A right. tuple... Which is when the optimizer specializes generic functions. So if you have function over T, and it's the compiler sees that you're using, you're passing an int there, it can just create mm-hmm. an int-specific version for you. Exactly. And that process of switching between abstraction levels is is called reabstraction. And what I learned from reading this doc is that uh bool or not bools, tuples uh face a more expensive reabstraction cost, um, especially if you're aggressively packing the members of that tuple. Now thankfully, because tuples are generally short lived and for the most part, they're rarely persisted across ABI boundaries, which means that they're rarely exposed as part of the public interface. Mm-hmm. Um, that reabstraction cost is fairly low because it can be done at compile time. Um, again, you know, if you're using it as internal or lower as part of your module, or if it's not exposed as part of the public interface, then that reabstraction can be done at compile time. But otherwise, it has to be done at runtime. And so generally, when you're writing Swift, you're not really thinking too much about the runtime hit of using a tuple versus uh, a struct. Right. Um, And actually, I've just intuitively assumed that tuples are uh, are fairly low runtime overhead. Um, Right. But reading this, I've, I've realized that that's not necessarily always the case. Yeah, and this partly comes from like this idea that tuples are like anonymous structs anonymous in quotes there um where a struct you have this like static definition and so you can derive all this information about it but since tuples you can just construct them on the fly without any kind of like formal declaration that's why you have mm-hmm. this cost is yeah. that yeah uh, i i, I think that so. how you read this yeah well there's a lot more to um uh, data layout than what we've w- went over, and we're already at, at over half an hour for the show. 
Um, uh, I really encourage you to read the ABI Stability Manifesto if you're curious about how this affects uh, all sorts of different other data types, whether it be uh, structs, tuples, enums, classes, um, uh, <laughs> existential containers, protocols. <laughs> uh, it's It can get pretty hairy. And I guess the, the meta point that I want to make here is really that ABI Stability is not something to be taken lightly. Yeah. Uh, you really need to consider every single angle and variant of what's possible in the Swift language to consider how it should be stable in the face of evolution in the future. Right. I mean, just the few things that we've discussed now, it's like, well, uh, it's not really clear like which is the better way to do something at all. And I think that's why, yeah, definitely why it's, you know, it's taken so long to figure this stuff out. Because uh, it's not straightforward at all. You know, I can even picture a world in which ABI stability is <laughs> the only goal for Swift 5 and yeah. that it takes the vast majority of the Swift team to focus on it for the coming year to just to make it happen because of the sheer scope of this. Yeah, And that if uh, there happen to be features along the way, then hooray, that's bonus. But right. I'm starting to think that to get this done, it's going to take... You know, a monumental effort. Yeah. That reminds me, uh, in the previous episode when we talked about the in- impact on app developers, there's one other aspect I wanted to mention. Uh, at DubDub, I was talking to someone in the labs, either, I can't remember if it was someone from Apple or um, just another developer, but another implication here is uh, LLDB. Um, because the ABI is not stable. That means memory layouts are not stable. And so, I mean, the whole purpose of LLDB is inspecting memory. So that's why it's currently in Swift very unstable or in a lot of cases for me, in my experience at least, it just doesn't work uh, or it crashes. Mm -hmm. Um, That's because there's this moving target where this team has to keep up with uh, potential changes that are constantly happening because there's not... Uh, this specification that they can rely on. Um, I can totally see that. Yeah. On the other hand, what we were talking about before in terms of um, an ABI being marked as stable but still being technically different, mm-hmm. you, I can see the argument for uh, a stable ABI making it easier for LLDB to, to, to be stable in its operation. Yeah. Um, but I can also see the, the counter argument of saying, well, Every LLDB version that is shipped so far is shipped with its own version of Swift. Yeah. And it's been revlocked to that. And so if anything, it should be easier because LLDB has only had to support a single version of Swift at a time. Right. Whereas moving forward, it'll have to support multiple versions of Swift. And so you won't so much have a moving target in terms of space. You'll have a moving target in terms of time. Right. That's um, true. So I'm not sure that I would completely, um, uh, you know, put my full weight behind that argument sure. that, oh, that's why LDB is unstable and it will be so much more stable so far with a stable ABI. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, There's a lot writing on the li- the completeness of the stability of the ABI um, when, when that comes um, in, into play. Yeah, good point. Yeah, there's a lot more to unpack there, I guess, but... Um... Yeah. So, well, yeah. Anyway, that's another uh, impact on app developers. Um, so we're almost out of time. We could do just a, 
a quick overview of type metadata. Um, just a couple minutes introduce sure. it. And sure. Yeah. Um, type metadata is really how uh, a type um, describes how it's broken up um, in terms of where its layouts are, what its layout is, what its offsets are, um, and and stabilizing all of that. Yeah, so all of the information about the types themselves um, and how to access that. Absolutely. Um, whether it's uh, you know clearly defining when the metadata is statically known or uh, what parts of it are dynamic and needs to be looked up via a runtime API. Yeah, we can. Yeah, <laughs> we can leave leave it at that. Yeah, and more discussion on type metadata uh, to be continued. I guess. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Yeah, so that's all for today. Uh, thanks again to Buddy Build for sponsoring. Uh, you can find the show uh, on Twitter at Swift underscore Unwrapped. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jesse underscore Squires. You can find me on Twitter at SimJP. And if you've enjoyed listening to the show so far, please do leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, and there's also a uh, chat channel that we've been using to um, have some conversations with listeners. So if you have anything that you want to talk to us about, uh, Swift related, um, please check us out, spectrum.chat slash specfm slash swift dash unwrapped. So you can find us there and uh, talk all about the show. See you next time. Yeah.